And I remember going, this was June 30th, 2011. And I go into the hospital and, you know, everybody's rolling their eyes like, oh, here comes the fuck up, you know, now he's here. There's pictures in the hospital of her holding the kids and all the kids together. My mom, there's no picture of me. And uh, I was passed out in the garage and I grabbed him and I held him and I remember crying to him and saying, uh, uh, I don't know how I'm going to do this, buddy. I don't. I don't know how. I don't know how to live, but but I promise you, hmm, I promise you, Maddox, I'm going to try. That was Cortland Pfeffer, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Share Podcast, and today we have Cortland Pfeffer joining us on the show, the author of Taking the Mask Off, Mental Health, Addiction, and a Spiritual Solution. This interview is supercharged, guys, so prepare yourself. It's all about the similarities on this one. Cortland and I have so much in common when it comes to hitting our rock bottoms in addiction. And more importantly, Cortland spent a tremendous amount of time in psychiatric hospitals, treatment centers, and jails and for the last six years has been clean and sober, and today works in the same industry, trying to help others and also to remove the stigma behind how they treat addicts in these institutions. Again, it's an emotionally charged episode. You guys are absolutely going to love it. It was an honor and a privilege to record this episode. So let's dive into Cortland's story, but first, let's share a few iTunes reviews. And the first one is from Mark Rickert, and Mark writes, Omar puts his heart into each podcast and secures amazing guests. Thanks for helping others in the sobriety community. Now, Mark has a new podcast coming up. It's called Soaring in Sobriety. I'm going to be interviewing him as well, and I'm also going to be on his show. So guys, stay tuned for my interview with Mark Rickard. And the next iTunes review is from... I think it says CRL Douglas. I'm assuming it's Carl Douglas. Found you through Dopey Podcast. The Dopey fans are solid. I got to tell you. Love all your interesting guests. Great inspirational stories. Raw, gritty, ripe at times. I like it. Man, that's how we roll. Uh, Definitely not as raw and gritty as uh, the Dopey Podcast. (laughs) But at the same time, it's real. And it is raw. And today's episode is one of those episodes. We get completely vulnerable. And as far as I'm concerned, that's what allows addicts and alcoholics the opportunity to share openly and get clean and sober. Because when you hear somebody else completely get butt naked honest in front of the world, how can you not be inspired to share your own story? So again, thanks for the great review. Now let's move on to the show. But first, I have something new and exciting to share with you guys. And that is that the Share Podcast is now going to be promoting certain products. And I'll tell you why. I want to produce the podcast full time. And to do so, I need to generate an income. So I'm going to be selecting specific products that all of us, especially us addicts and alcoholics, can benefit from. And the first product we'll be promoting is called Organifi. And Organifi is a gently dried superfood mix that takes 30 seconds to make with no blending, no juicing, and no cleanup. 
Organifi is a coconut and ashwagandha-infused green juice that is gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, vegan, and absolutely delicious. One glass of Organifi per day will supercharge your life. The organic ingredients help your body to naturally detoxify, reduce stress, improve digestion, improve mental clarity, and boost your energy levels. Now here's the kicker. Ashwagandha and turmeric are used to treat addiction as well. This is due to the natural calming effects of ashwagandha and the liver detoxification properties of turmeric. My wife and I drink it every day now and immediately start to see the results, especially the boost in energy levels and digestion. Try it for yourself and get 20% off your order. Now you'll find links to Organifi on the Share Podcast website as well as the show notes, or go to www.organify.com. And remember to spell Organify with an I instead of a Y, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I. And use promo code SHARE, S-H-A-I-R, to receive 20% off your order today. And speaking of exciting news, on next Tuesday's episode, we will have Anna David joining us on the show. And for those of you who don't know, and is the host of After Party Pod and the Recover Girl podcast, as well as the author of Party Girl. She is now the editor-in-chief of In Recovery Magazine, and she has a very special promotion for our Share Podcast listeners. From now until June 22nd, which is this coming Thursday, new subscribers can get a year-long subscription of In Recovery Magazine delivered right to your door for only $4.99, an entire year of In Recovery Magazine for only $4.99. I will have a link to the discounted subscription rate on the Facebook private group and Facebook fan page, or you can just email me at o at thesharepodcast.com and I will email you the link. Once you subscribe, then just send me an email or just post on the Facebook fan page or private group that you've already subscribed, and I'll put you into a raffle where you can win a signed copy of Anna's best-selling book, Party Girl. So now, a quick message from Transitions Daily, and on to the show. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hey, Cortland, thanks for joining us. Hey, all, thanks for having me. It's exciting to have you on the show today, man. How you feeling? I'm feeling good. All right, I love it. All right, so folks, today we have Cortland Pfeffer joining us on the Share Podcast. And Cortland is the author of Taking the Mask Off, Destroying the Stigmatic Barriers of Mental Health and Addiction Using a Spiritual Solution. Uh, Cortland spent years as a patient in psychiatric hospitals, treatment centers, and jails before becoming a registered nurse and working in the same facilities. This is a story about recovery that goes inside the mental health and addiction field Revealing the Problems and Providing a Spiritual Solution. Sounds fascinating, Cortland. Yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, it was a long process, um, but we try to talk about um, the good stuff, my personal story, things I learned, people I met that helped me, people I had to help, I met that maybe didn't help me but taught me lessons and, and things I learned and, and good things and positive things and all the things I tried and and, and what I eventually came to was um, what I felt worked for me. 
And so it kind of felt like shearing, you know, when you when you then work in the field and and you've been on both sides of the desk, it's like I felt like, you know, maybe I have information that not a lot of people have and kind of a responsibility to to share generally unknown information. Perfect. Well, I can't wait to get into it. But before we dive in, just take us into your normal daily routine right now, including recovery. Yeah, I you know, I think that I'm really glad you asked that. That's a I th- think that's a um, really important question because what we do um, every day, I, I, people I've met and talked to is is when they have relapses, it's it's kind of like they start doing this routine and everything's working and they're feeling better. And then they stop doing it because they're feeling better. And then usually that leads right up to a relapse. And, and it's, um, I remember when I was in treatment, um, one guy said, you know, diabetics, uh, take, check their blood sugar, give themselves insulin. This stuff is just your stuff. It's what you have to do. So, so I try every day I, I have, first of all, I have, um, like a contact list of, uh, people to call every day I have people that I call every day. I have people that I call like every week, people that I call, uh, monthly just to make sure I stay connected. And I talk to people because, uh, being isolated and having shame and, things happen where you feel bad and, and having that connection, that human connection for me, I found is so important. Um, I do affirmations every day, which is for me very hard because I've lived a whole life thinking, uh, having these negative files in my brain, thinking I'm this, this, uh, bad person. It's been reiterated this inner voice. So I got to try to find something unique every day, not just the same old, you're a nice person. You're a good guy really force myself to do that. I, I do try to meditate when I wake up for like 15 minutes and just clear my mind. I try to find somebody. I look for opportunities to help somebody. And what I found is when you start looking for the opportunities to help somebody, that they actually appear way more than we think they do when we're actually aware of it. So I try to do that. I try to find something beautiful inside of somebody and say it to them. And no matter what kind of a weird look I get or what kind of uh, how embarrassed I feel saying it, um, it seems to like the more you give out of this love and and it seems to spread inside of you and it starts to feel good. And and then I like to review my day at the end. And um, it's uh, it gets kind of, you know, sometimes it's like, wow, do I really have to do this? But yes, yes, I've learned you do it's like it's like a (laughs) normal disease if you don't do this stuff it it goes right back into to the problems this is how we solve it so i try to do physical activity every day that doesn't always work um but sometimes that's kind of meditation for me (laughs) well your routine sounds very busy very healthy and very recovery related and i agree 100 percent uh, if you're not working on your recovery, you're working on your relapse. I am a firm believer Absolutely. of that. The the uh, escalator never stops. You're either going down or you're going up. You know. Um, so yeah, I, I agree 100. percent And having that that time to to really help others, like what you're talking about right now, or making yourself available to help others, is paramount. You know, the more times you can get out of yourself the easier it is to connect with your higher power and get out of that self-centered fear. It is. You feel that connectedness. And and one thing I do hear from a lot of people is, I don't have time for that. I don't have time yeah. for that. And you know what I say? 
you know what? How come I used to find six hours a night to drink? And, uh, <laughs> and I'll my time for that. But you know what? I never had time to do the laundry. And now I can find four hours on a weekend of golf. But you know what? When it comes time to doing the dishes, I don't have time for that. I don't think it's a matter of time. I think it's a people say that, but it's really based on priority. What a, say it? Say it yourself like this. What is my priority? You have time to meditate. It's 15 minutes. You have time to. And if you look for somebody who needs help, I guarantee if you start looking for it, you're going to see it's way more than you think. So people do have time. It's you just got to get. I don't have time. I don't have time. Yes, we have time. Absolutely. So how do you maintain your spiritual condition, that conscious contact with a higher power every day? I uh, I I would call it talking to myself or talking to the universe or talking to I'm constantly doing it. Um, uh, I'll put my head down at work or something. And when I'm in a tough situation or I'm stressed out and it's almost become a habit where I just um, stop and I'm like, okay. And I'll, I'll say, help me. Or I'll say, what do I do? Or, or um, settle down. I don't ask for anything. I just try to listen and try to talk and I, I have found now this is not the same for everybody. This is just for me. It works for me. If I'm able to silence my mind and the noise that comes in my head, because all that is from other people and from my past and society and whatever, whatever people told me when I was younger. If I can silence that noise, the truth comes in and it tells you what to do. And I think you know what the truth is simply by the way it feels. Mm. When you know what's right it feels, you feel it. It feels different. That's how you know. So and I'm constantly, you know, some people might think I'm, I'm a wacko, but I'm sometimes <laughs> I will just stop and, you know, I'll, I'll put my hand on my nail, say, come on, come on, come on, come on. It could be just saying something like that or, or what's next or what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? What's my intention? Why am I doing this? So, and at night I purposely try to talk and I don't, I, try not to ask for anything because to me i cheated death and um, a lot of people would tell you if um i was not in jail or dead by now there's a million to one odds on that yeah and so I feel like i'm playing with house money and I, I i have to um give back and i have to talk and that's what's worked i get answers all the time doing it I agree 100%. And the, the the difficult part is the practice, because this is not something that you can do one time. And what you describe right now uh, about sitting quietly and asking the right questions and, and getting those intuitive answers, if you were to sit down and do it, if you've never done that before, and you, you did it just one day and nothing happened, right? then you're like, ah, well, this doesn't work. But it's a practice. It's absolute practice. It's in, it's also very intuitive. So you, you have to pay attention to what the intuitive signs from the universe are. But that only comes with a consistent practice. And I remember doing that myself where it was like 20 minutes a day, I'm going to sit. And I did that. I remember usually it's when the shit hits the fan and when mm -hmm. I'm in trouble and, and I've got to make a tough decision or something like that. I'll go to meditating and I'll sit every day for 20 minutes and sometimes a week will go by nothing, right? But I'll keep doing yep. it until all of a sudden, like, it's almost like this intuitive answer comes, right? But I learned over the years that it wasn't going to happen overnight. And right. 
I've also learned that if I stay consistent and I do it more regularly, then it's easier connect to connect with the universe. Uh, but when things are good, you know, you you know, it's like all of a sudden I don't have time for shit, like you say. Yeah, things are going well, so um, I don't need to do that. And I think I I agree with you a thousand percent. When I first, I mean, I I'm anxious by nature, you know, trauma. I'm just like I'm gonna sit down and listen to this negative shit about myself. No way, man. And it, it didn't work. And sometimes it made me more depressed. But like you said, with the practice, I think of it as like I'm riding a bike. The first time you ride a bike, you fall down, you get back up and you do it more. And all of a sudden it starts to happen. And you it's really about erasing the negative thoughts start coming and more positive thoughts start coming in. And it's like I've realized that that all the voices and the inner the, the words you hear about yourself there aren't even yours. They're not even real. There's stuff that has been said. And then all of a sudden you get to this inner voice that's your own. And you're the one that's connected with the universe. And it takes consistency and practice. And when people say, I don't have time for that, I say, well, you wake up at six and you take a shower. You can't wake up at 545 or 530. I mean, it's really, it, it, it's essential, I think. Yes. It's essential. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so so uh, before we get too wrapped up on that, because we could spend a couple hours on that, uh, yeah. <laughs> tell me, Cortland, how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs, and more importantly, how did they make you feel? Oh, man, I think, uh, you know, I started late, actually, because my grandma was alcoholic, and my mom grew up telling me how, how bad it was, and I, I was scared, and uh, I don't really remember, I, gosh, the date, but um, this my addiction started long before I had my first drink. You know, I was masking my emotions and not wanting to talk about things. But I remember the first time I drank and um, I was drunk and I thought to myself, this is exact words. I said, holy shit, this is why everybody does this. <laughs> I was like, well, I didn't stop after that. It was like all this fear, all this anxiety, all this falseness. I knew intrinsically that I had been living was gone and I could talk to people and I could, um, I could act goofy and I could be myself and I wasn't afraid of what people thought. And it was like, what I was feeling was this, this thirst for the spirituality. And I thought I was getting it from this bottle. I didn't realize I could get it without the bottle. So then I thought the bottle is what gives me that, but it was already in me. And then bad things started happening and the destruction. And so that's, I think, how it tricks you. It, it pulls you in that way. It takes away all this, this stuff that's built up in you through society and growing up. And, and it takes it away. But then it, starts, then it starts eating you alive. And you're like, what the hell? I thought you were my friend. <laughs> your mortal enemy <laughs> just yes. the opposite. your story sounds yes. just like the first time i did cocaine i felt exactly yeah. the same way yeah well i remember the first time i did coke uh, cocaine i was like whoa i have never felt so much peace in my life yeah. like everything makes sense everything everything my the wires in my brain that are always shooting in 700 different directions all of a sudden connected and yep. I was like, is this, I thought to myself, is this what everybody else feels like all the time? <laughs> I, you know, but, but, but it tricks you, you know, you can do it without it. That's, I didn't know that. That's, I think that's how you just become it. I don't, I don't know. You become addicted to the feeling. 
Right, 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 right. Uh, so, Cortland, real quick, how much clean time do you have, and when's your anniversary date? Uh, it is up July 9th, 2011, almost six years. Um, Excellent. I, the, my favorite way to answer that question, though, is um, 24 hours. <laughs> World record, 24 hours. Yeah, people ask me how long I've been sober. A lot of times I say 24 hours. Because I do think um, sometimes we we do in this field get caught up in numbers. You know, you have a guy who's been sober six months. He has a drink. Um, and then he feels so much shame. And it's like, um, oh, I got to start over. And I always try to tell people, you don't lose that good time to me. Um, and if you learn from a relapse, like what triggered it, what caused it, if you can learn from it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a mistake. Your reaction to the relapse is important. And so many people will have feel so much shame from the relapse that they don't want to come back to their group or to their meetings. And I think of a guy like who has heart disease and, and the doctor says, you can't be eating uh, cheeseburgers. And then he goes and eats a double cheeseburger and has a heart attack. Nobody tells him he's a bad person. I think this, we got to just change the way we talk to people when they, I mean, we want, addicts in recovery to live a linear life, you know, and, and nobody lives a linear life, especially addicts. I don't, I'm not, I certainly don't advocate relapse, but if you have one, if you can learn from it, sometimes, sometimes it can launch you into a, uh, a better recovery. Sometimes not, but there's warning signs. But so I like to say 24 hours because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> Corlin, my friend, you're all warmed up, buddy. All right, so it's time for me to turn this show over to you. It's time for you to share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and then finally, your journey into recovery, plus when you wrote the book, up until today. So, Cortland, take it away. Okay, so, uh, you know, I, I, like I I said I started drinking late, but I but I had what what they would call psychiatric problems. I had my first psychiatric hospitalization when I was 16, 17. I tried to kill myself when I was 18, and I I was in the hospital for some time, and and um, I learned a lot there. Actually, um, it felt safe. Um, I started um, I started drinking. I had a I had a kid when I was 19. Her name is Kayla. And um, when she was born, I, I felt this uh, immense love that I think I my soul had always been searching for and always kind of knew existed. And it was just there. And I was sitting there crying, holding her. And um, I didn't, for one time in my life, I didn't give a shit what anybody thought. I was holding this little girl and crying. I was like, this is, um, this is what life is about. And... Uh, she got um, taken away from me. Uh, oh. but, um, her mother um, and me, not it's not her fault. We were young and had a very terrible relationship. Two people from kind of messed up backgrounds and trying to be healthy and being 19 with the kid. She moved to Florida, told um, Kayla somebody else was her dad. I didn't talk to her for two years. I, get, I didn't know where she was. They kept moving. I got a call on the phone one day. Um, saying, um, from Kayla, this four-year-old girl saying, uh, my daddy bought me these shoes and they weren't talking about me. So I had my own four-year-old daughter saying my dad and not talking about me. And they were laughing in the background. They, um, and, um, I dropped the phone and, um, 
I just, uh, I was uh, dead. I just, I, I, I didn't know what to do. Uh, this immense love and, and everything I'd been searching for to get out of, out of this world and pain I'd been in my whole life was taken from me and then said, um, this is my dad and people were laughing and, um, I dropped to my knees and, and I, uh, I felt empty like this. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking about it right now and I still feel, uh, uh, sick to my stomach and, and I feel it brother. And, uh, um, it was, uh, probably the most devastating thing I could ever, uh, explain anybody uh anybody who's lost a kid or had a kid kidnapped i didn't know where she was for two years and then i get this call and um i would sit um sit up at night and pray to die i would i would pour pills on the floor and i would be ready to take them and uh i would say kill me god kill me i want to die and i could never take the pills and I was prepared and I had tried killing myself before this. I actually, the funny thing is I met her mother through the psych ward when I had tried to kill myself. Um, but I started doing, um, cocaine meth and, and I, I remember telling my friends, um, at the time I said, you know, if, if I, uh, if I die and I have a heart attack, don't do anything. And I would take loads and loads and loads of it. Um, I got to the point where, you know, I was quitting jobs as every day, um, stealing. I actually, um, robbed a mom of five or six years, she had five or six kids on welfare. And I took her $500 and said, I'm going to buy you some weed and sell it for you. And I took it and I told her I got robbed. And, um, uh, I did stuff like that. I, I started selling. I was driving around. I was mushrooms, acid, cocaine. I was, I believe, trying to kill myself yep. without doing it because I didn't have the, I didn't want anything to um, do with it. And then um, I was playing a, a pickup football game and uh, I broke my leg and, and it just shattered and and I couldn't move and I couldn't walk and I had to go back and live with my mom and uh, sit in a bed in the living room. And I remember thinking to myself, what the, what next? What the fuck is going to happen next? And I uh, was sitting on this bed in my mom's living room, a drug addict already wanting to die. And now I can't move. I can't make money. I can't steal from anybody. I can't rob from anybody. I'm stuck with my mom. I can't even go to the bathroom. My leg is shattered so bad. And what I realize now is it was like a forced meditation or soul search. <laughs> man, I was so mad. And, um, and so I sat there and I thought, and I thought I had nothing else to do but think. Right. And, and I thought, you know what? Um, I played a part in this. I was 19 and I spent my whole life blaming other people. And yeah, I had a rough childhood, but I was an angry young man. And, um, I was not nice to her mother and, um, she was the first person who ever stood up to me. I wasn't nice to a lot of people. And she finally said, I have had enough. And she moved. And for the first time in my life, I thought you, you, you need to, you need to change. 
because they're gone. You've lost them. Now what you can do is change how you behave and maybe good things will happen. Try to start giving back. So I just started calling people saying, you know, remember when I spit in your face and beat you up and be, you know, for no reason. I remember one time we just grabbed pizza from a pizza guy and scared the hell out of him. We we're just awful. All for drugs, all for drugs, all for that feeling of connection. Right. And it's a jerk. It's just, it's, I was that guy, you know, on the street where the parents say, don't hang out with that kid. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, my mom and dad didn't say that. I was that kid. I was, you know, hang around him. And, and she stood up to me. So she wasn't nice to me either, of course. But, um, but I, but I was like, okay, I started doing this. And then, um, uh, I was like, my mom said, well, why don't you just uh, try going to uh, LPN school? I did that. I walked in there in a crutches. And for the first time in my life, I was like, wow, these people actually want to learn and they talk normal. And I had been hanging around. I remember smoking crack in apartments and, and uh, for something, something hitting. And for the first time in my life, I finished a semester. I mean, I didn't finish high school. I quit. Okay. And in 11th grade, I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, I just thought the whole thing was stupid. And um, so I went and and I um, I met some people that made, I didn't really want to go, but I met some people that I wanted to be around. And so I kept coming to be around them. But then before you know it, I was towards the end. And of course, I started drinking then again and almost got kicked out of nursing school because I'd show up and, and uh, they knew I was drunk and we'd go and drink all the time. So I was like, oh, well, I'm not doing coke and that I'm drinking and and then eventually I get a call from um, Kayla's mom saying, this guy's uh, beating mouse. We're going to sneak out of the house. So I was like, out of nowhere, I started being nice and being kind to people and just trying to give love and, and say good things to people. And the next thing you know, she says, we're moving back. And I thought, holy cow, I lost her. She was dead and she's back. And I remember getting a call in class saying, we are here. And I got, oh, I got up and I, I got up and I ran out of that classroom and I, I met him and I saw my daughter for the first time. Oh man, it was like, uh, there is a God. How could there not be? Um, but, uh, I kept drinking and, and her mom then, um, who had her own issues, dropped her off with me and said, this is your father, not your dad. She was confused. Her mom then got into meth, started it. Her mom then ended up going to federal prison for a long time. And so I'm working and I get a call saying they found Kayla, my daughter, walking in 15 degree weather and a Wisconsin highway and a stranger picked her up. Oh. And it's another thing. Another there were two vans. The one that picked her up brought her to the police station and called and then a chips, you know, a child protection thing. But what if that other van had picked her up? Who knows who that was? And that, that's like, that's one thing I remember is like every moment matters. If you see somebody with the opportunity to help them, you help them. Um, because this guy, I think his name is Dan Martin from Spooner, Wisconsin. And in him stopping that van, not only changed Kayla's life, but mine and millions of lives. And that guy is a hero and he probably has no idea what he did. And, uh, 
Someday I'd love to be able to find him and say, look at what you've done because you picked up this five, five or six year old girl. And then there's a big custody case and all this. And, and, and all of a sudden, two years later, two years ago, I don't have this girl and I'm a desperate ready to die. All of a sudden I have full custody of her. <laughs> but what in the hell? And her mom then of course went to federal prison and I, but you know, I kept, um, and then I met, uh, Jenny, who I got married to, and she kind of took over, and I took that as a, okay. You know, I was 24 years old, 25, trying to raise her, and and, uh, I started drinking more and more and more and more and more, and I got jobs, and I kept thinking, look, I work. I make plenty of money, and then I went to RN school and finished that in like a year, self-study. I thought, I'm not a drunk. Uh, There's nothing wrong with me. I have to, I, and then I, I got this job as a supervisor and I'm like, you know, I'm making, you know, plenty of money. We had a four bedroom, three bathroom house, uh, uh, Mercedes and a BMW. And I thought, look at me, you know, and I was living this American dream. And I realized why the hell am I still so depressed? Because I, I was living for everybody else. I was, I was doing what everybody else wanted me to do. I, I, I felt, uh, a falseness about it, a fakeness about it. And, and I kept drinking and drinking and drinking. And I had this friend, Joe is my best friend. And, um, we, we were similar. We were always similar stories. Um, but he would always go to jail and call me and bail, I, you know, come bail him out. The difference between me and him is he had, he had less money. So he would stay in jail. I would go, I would go see doctors that would help me and I, he wouldn't because he didn't have the resources. So we really had a connection and he stayed with us, but, but I was trying to slow down on the drinking and he would come around and we eventually said, Joe, you gotta, you gotta leave. And, um, first time I did that to me, to him, he went to jail again. He didn't call me. He always called me when he was trouble. I was always the one he called. I got an email after we kicked him out two weeks later. Uh, and he had hung himself. Oh. And he yeah. and so me drinking and all this and guilt and everything, and I kicked my best friend out of my house who I was trying to help. You know, and all that one thing I'll never forget when he came with us, he ate this plate of spaghetti and he thought, This is the best meal I've ever had. And I thought to myself, I eat this every night, and he this is special to him. This is bullshit. He's a better man than me. Um and he was dead. And I felt responsible. And although I was already an alcoholic and an addict, and this sent me on a, a year-long binge. I had, at this point, a one-year-old girl. And I would watch her, and I would be hammered. I drank and drove. I got caught once. Should have got caught a hundred times. I would um, hide bottles in um, her dirty diapers so the mom didn't find them. I manipulated, I, I, um, tore everybody apart. Uh, my family, my best friends, people who supported me. Um, I used them because all I wanted was that feeling. And I felt like, why does nobody want me to have that feeling? Because that makes me feel connected and my fear goes away. And instead everybody sees a sociopathic jerk and, and uh, nobody really reached out and and you get called names and shamed and that makes you feel worse. And then you drink and you do these things. And on top of all your other shit, now you got the stuff you did the night before 
and the regrets and the not coming home. And, you know, I'll remember my one-year-old girl saying, um, will you put that bottle down, Daddy? And uh, I couldn't. I couldn't. And then, um, you know, I, I uh, always wanted a son. And all of a sudden, um, you know, my wife couldn't get pregnant and she got pregnant and it was a boy. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's my, this is like 66 months after Joe died. And I thought, this is it. It's my chance. It's what I've always wanted. And, you know, 10 days before she's ready going to labor, I'm sitting there. I have a tape of me just hammered, drinking. She could go into labor at any time. And it was all fake. And then people would come over and we'd talk to them and we'd, we were pretend. It was just this big, false persona. And it, it made me sick. And I was like, and then she goes into, she says she's going into labor. And the, the, this is my dream to have this son for some reason. And, and I'm having one. And, and the first thought I have is she cannot be serious. I hope this isn't real. Because I want to drink. And um, everybody said, you're going to be drunk when she goes in labor. And I wasn't. But then the next morning, I go golfing and I'm going to go visit them. And I stop in and have a, a drink. And I have another, another, another. And I don't. the next thing I know is I missed the first three days of his life in the hospital. And I was past the garage. Past the garage and... Uh, and I remember going, and this was June 30th, 2011 now, and I go into the hospital and, you know, everybody's rolling their eyes like, oh, here comes the fuck up, you know, now he's here. After, there's pictures in the hospital of her holding the kids and all the kids together. My mom, there's no picture of me. And uh, I was passed out in the garage and I grabbed him and I held him and I remember crying to him and saying, uh, uh. I don't know how I'm going to do this, buddy. I don't, I don't know how. I don't know how to live, but, but I promise you, I promise you, Maddox, I'm going to try, and I'm going to do my best. And I don't know if I can do it. And uh, some kind of uh, feeling came over me. Um, my girlfriend now. Um, Bree would ex- explain it when I was telling it to her. She said, like a tidal wave. Mm. Can't explain it any better than that. It, something came over me where I was like, I've never been able to do this, but and I, I know it's going to be hard, but for some reason, I was like going to fight this monster that I had no chance of winning. And I was like, I, I think I'm going to do it. And I held him and I cried and I, I was whispering in his ear and I was crying. I said, Matic, we're going to be born together. I'm going to do it. for. I'm going to. And I know nobody thinks I can. And and then, of course, a week later was July 9th at this golf tournament. And I was nervous as hell. And um, six hole, I stopped in and had a drink and passed out again. And and uh, that was it. That was um, the last time I had a drink. And um, I remember treatment thinking... I'm bad. I'm a, I'm a jerk. I'm a bad person. And I went on a rant. I didn't even want to go to treatment. I said, I'm not as bad as those guys. I said, okay, I'll 
I'll go one time. I'll go one time. Showed up 15 minutes late. I'm a bad person. I've been sober 14 days now, which is the longest I had ever been sober is 24 days. And that was so hard because it was just fighting every day. And uh, I said, I'm bad, man. This, we're just bad people. We're bad people. We're all jerks. What are you doing trying to help us? And Mary, the counselor, said, I think it's time for the video. And she put in a video of this Dr. David Holmes, and he explained alcoholism and said, you don't get drunk every time. You just, once you, you, there, you can't predict whether you're going to be up all night or not. And I thought to myself for the first time, holy shit, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. And it all changed. And then I met three, four people who saved my life. I mean, at the bitter end, there, there were people... Uh, it was um, the journey. Um, you find out so much about everybody. You f- you lose, and I think people think recovery is quitting the substance. It is so far from the truth. That's a part of it, but everything changes. Your friends change, your lifestyle, your environment. You find out a lot about other people. You, it's like I didn't even know who I was, and I was like, who am I? I don't even know what I am. And so I started trying new things. Like I, I used to make fun of plays. I went to this play. I was like, holy shit, I like that, man. That was fun. Maybe I do like, it was like almost fun, like a blank slate. Like I get to find out who I really am because I've been hiding for so dang long. And um, I started telling everybody, hey, guess what, guys? I'm not bad. I have a disease. And of course, you know how that came over with everybody who I had hurt. They, you know, they didn't want to hear that. So it was a process, but. I do have problems with a lot of the system, but if it wasn't for some of these people in this system, I wouldn't be here. Uh, I remember going to the doctor saying I'm depressed and him saying, well, I think you have tuberculosis or something or chronic fatigue syndrome. I didn't want to reach out for help. That's hard. Then I finally went to the same clinic and the doctors, he knows my name. He took an hour with me when he was an hour behind and just people like that. I still see this guy and, and he took time and he talked to me. Doctors are supposed to see a patient every 15 minutes. He took an hour with me in my hour in need, and he he knew my name, and he, he remembered. He made me come back in two weeks. The treatment center, the people I met at treatment, um, then I went to therapy, and these people rewired, helped, like, re, by like almost, like, rebirthed me. And it was, uh, it's just a, I can't even explain it. It's not like... Uh, I tell people addiction is the greatest thing that happened to me. And they sometimes look at me like, like I'm crazy. And I, what I mean is if you get to the other side, it is so beautiful. But getting there is not easy. And it's painful. And it sucks. And you're lonely. And you have to leave people, maybe even your family, you feel insane. But to keep fighting through it when that it, it, what what happens from it is is truly a gift. Yeah, I wish they taught twelve steps in schools. Yeah, but here's what I here's what I see is uh, success rate is they'll tell you ten percent, but it's probably more like five mm-hmm. percent. And um, what happens is people go in, and you're dealing with people who usually have trauma, usually have some kind of underlying condition that caused this and a lot of counselors not all of them there are some wonderful people i have to say that now so 
I'm not completely anti the system, but I'd say 90% of these people come out of school um, and their attitudes towards the patients are there. Why don't they just quit drinking? Why aren't they? Um, they're morally bankrupt. They're, they're, they need to just quit. Look at all the damage it caused. What, what is wrong with them? And in staff meetings, um, they talk bad about the clients. I remember working at a state facility and a patient comes in and he's like, Hey guys, thank you for all your help. And he leaves and they all go, go like you and they wash their hands. He's disgusting. And now if we have an attitude about patients like that, I try to tell people if I, if that thoughts in your head, it's going to yeah. cause how you treat them. Now, if I meet, if I meet you and somebody says, Oh, he's a sociopath. I'm going to think every time you say something nice, I'm going to say he's manipulating me. And if you do something uh, mean, I'm, I'll say, see, cause the thoughts are already in my head. But if they say, Oh, he's a nice guy. Every time you do a nice thing, I think, yeah, see, he's a nice guy. We get biased by other people's opinions and charts. And so if it gets written in a chart, this guy's an addict uh, it just gets copy and paste and copy. Nobody ever looks underneath. And so then they don't recover. And a lot of people say, well, they weren't ready. It's, be it's like blaming the victim and see, so what other business could succeed at a 5% success rate and continue to maintain the way they do things? You have people that aren't really well-trained. Now, some people are, but um, you're told um, if somebody builds relationships with these clients, a lot of times they are told you have boundary issues. Well, I remember one patient getting in trouble for giving a high five or a staff or high fiving a patient. This was a uh, patient who probably hadn't been hugged in 15 years. And so I said, why the hell can't we high five them? It's probably the only human touch they've gotten in 15 years. Um, a lot of them didn't have, I mean, People will tell you trauma of 70%, 60%, but in 24 years of being and doing this, I have never met one person who did not have a trauma of some sort. And that's not a study that's reading charts and getting to know people for 24 years. And, and I, I remember recently looking at somebody's chart and it said, trauma history, the doctor wrote, this is a 25-year psychiatrist wrote, no trauma. Then underneath it, he writes, brother killed himself, husband killed himself, daughter's dead. And I thought, no trauma history. <laughs> and this is like that just for 25 years. And there's this thing now coming out called trauma-informed care where we treat everybody who walks through that building like they've been through trauma. If I treat you like an addict, what's one thing? If I treat you like a victim, a trauma victim that needs help, I'm going to treat you differently. But what happens is there's people who really try to help and they're the minority and they get ostracized and they get pushed out of the field and they're kind of the odd ones and they get burnt out and they're the ones who should be leading the field and they're leaving. And so I don't think it's the addiction that has a hard time overcoming. It's the system and nobody wants, if we had a, so if we had a cancer drug that worked 5% of the time and made people sicker we would throw it out. But we have a system that works 5% of the time. And you know what we do? Keep doing it. And if it doesn't work, we blame the, the customer, the victim. 
Um, so it's it's kind of and people are making money off this. I mean, some of these treatment centers charge eighty four hundred dollars yeah. a month, and they say, "Well, it, you know, the recidivism rate is so high, people keep coming back because what we're doing is wrong. We're not treating the issue. We're treating the behavior. We're not looking behind the behavior. It because it's easy. You see somebody acting like a you know like I did. It would be very hard for somebody to say." Hey, actually, he's a nice guy. Let's nobody ever did that. But the people that did, I would say they were my psychological life support and I'd be dead without them. My brother, my friend James, um, they loved me unconditionally and and hugged me when everybody else was kicking. And I call that like psychological life support. When you hug when everybody else is kicking, you say you save people's lives and you don't know it. It's so powerful, man. It's so absolutely powerful. I couldn't agree with you more. But again, I've never been part of that system. Uh, I didn't have the luxury of treatment when I got clean. I had Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, so I just, if I didn't show up to a meeting, you know, I was on my own. And I'm so, I'm so grateful today yeah. that I was so desperate. I was so beaten that... That was offered to me, and I took it, and I went there every single day. And again, there's no agenda. There's no one charging you a monthly right. admission. There's nobody there counseling you. There's nobody there who hasn't experienced those rock bottom, that incomprehensible demoralization that you and I have gone through. I'm in a room with a bunch of guys who have no agenda and are there to listen and care, honestly. It's not like that. And see, that's, that's a gift. That's why some of these meetings are, are wonderful. There isn't in, in treatment centers. And, um, a lot of times you have this, um, attitude of superior and inferior, like I authoritarian and, um, above and I'm above you and below you and, and it's punishment. And I, and I always tell people, you guys, punishment doesn't work. If it did, we wouldn't be the most incarcerating society in the history of mankind. People would keep coming back to jail if punishment Correct. worked. It, 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 so the meetings do work. I mean, I mean, every meeting's different, and a meeting that works for you might not work for me. And I always tell people, go to three or four because they're all their own entity. But you can hear some good stuff and support there that you really aren't going to hear in treatment. And people aren't making money about over No, it. absolutely not. Um, I got to tell you, man, your story was fucking me up the whole time. You have two experiences that are identical to my one, and I feel you because every time I talk about it, it brings me to tears. And, you know, I was, I'd lost my wife, I'd lost my business, I was in really poor health, uh, my liver was a disaster, I'd lost everything, and my daughter was born, and um, I must have been able to scrape you know, a couple months together and I was sitting in that emergency room, not emergency room, but I was sitting in the, in the room right after she was born. And I sat there and I held her in my arms and I just prayed to God to help me because I had lost everything, Yeah, you know, and every time I talk about it, 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 it evokes this immediate need to cry because you know, I'm yes. right back yeah. sitting there holding her and praying to God to help me because I have not been able to put together a significant amount of clean time in so long I can't remember. And I did not want to be some drug addict trying to raise a child. 
Um, and it worked, man. I mean, I prayed and I prayed, and there was something. You know, I'm 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 about to to celebrate 14 years here in in May, and uh, my daughter's 14 years old. God, it's very similar. My son's about to turn six. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's that moment where enough's enough, and for us, our children, you know, are the are the are every fiber in our being in that moment. And for the first six months of my sobriety, it was her that kept me clean and sober. It was purely her. I mean, I went to meetings every single day, but when I would get these overwhelming urges to use, I would just, I'd grab that little oh, picture yeah. out of my wallet and I'd stare at it and I'd just go, you're not doing this. You're not doing this. Yeah, those cravings, though, that those first six months brutal are, are brutal. So it's I I would explain it in no other way that it's pure torture, and and I remember thinking, why the hell am I doing this? I if this is how people in recovery live, I'm not doing it. And then I had a guy look at me and said, "Trust me, it's gonna get better." And he just had this look in his eye, like he's serious, man. And it it gave me fuel to keep going, but. I think the kids being born, I think that just shows you the power of love. I mean, when they say there's all these old sayings from Gandhi, Martin Luther King, all these people, love always wins. And if you let yourself love it, it it's just like, it can overcome anything, anything. I believe it. It happened for me. You know, I had, I didn't have any love for myself and I prayed for death plenty of times, but there was something about holding her in my arms that was such a dramatic change in me, a spiritual awakening. There's no other way of explaining it. Right. It was so powerful. It was so cathartic that, um, you know, it just lived within me and, and was the fuel that I needed. And I know it doesn't happen for everybody. Everybody's story is different. But for us, think it didn't happen for you the first time, but it did happen yeah. for you the second time. And the the thing to remember, and man, you know, when you were talking about me seeing your daughter for the first time, I mean, it just mm-hmm. crushed me, man. I've, I'm right there, and there's so many people that are going to hear your story and, and can relate, you know, horror stories about people that have lost their children because of the disease, mm-hmm. including your ex, who who, yep. who who spiraled out of control because of her own addiction, you know, um, and it's this is why. Get, go ahead. And to get looked at like you're this bad person or prisoner or evil. Now, what other disease do we condemn people for having? And if you look at the rates, relapse rates for asthma, first time asthma users or first time diagnosed heart disease user, actually relapse at a higher rate and actually cost more money. But there's empathy for them, and there's not an addiction. No. And it's the way, it's the way we look at it, and and when you talk about how you felt that overwhelming thing when you held your daughter, that that's how I felt when I um, held Maddox. And it, it's it's almost um, unexplainable, but hearing you talk about it, I feel it. I I go right back to that moment I held him, and I can feel it, and I can always go back to that feeling, and it is overwhelming. It is absolutely overwhelming. You know, if I ever need to, if I ever became an actor and had to cry on cue, all I got to do is think about that. Think about that. 
Yes. And I'm yes. done. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's 14 years later and I can't, I can't talk about it without, without breaking into tears because, you know, and she's, she's an amazing young lady. Everything that I feel I could have done has worked. You know, I have a, a great relationship with my ex-wife only because of recovery. And it's through that relationship and us working together to, to raise my daughter that her and I have, my daughter and I have an amazing relationship um, and she's, she's a good kid, you know, and I've always told her from, from, from the beginning, I used to take her to meetings with me when she was a baby until she was old en- <laughs> until she was old enough to understand <laughs> the shares. And then I said, that's it. Yeah. I'm not bringing her back. We dropped too many F-bombs, but you her, know, her, her life started by her, her <laughs> life started by saving yours. Yeah. 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 And she knows that I tell her, as a matter of fact, I tell her that I go, you know, day you were born i i swore i'd i'd never use again you know um and to this day i've managed to do that you know um i ruined you know the marriage the marriage between your mother and i was ruined because of my alcoholism you know and and uh we fought all the time because of because of me and and now i don't drink anymore and and that's why we're friends you know um and so you know she has in in her own right she she hates cigarettes she won't drink, you know. She's only fourteen, but you know, I mean, I've heard plenty right. of stories of people starting at twelve. Oh yeah, yep. You know what and, I mean? And there's there's that genetic component too, and yeah. the peer pressure. It, yeah, it's coming. Yeah, yeah. So, so for right now, I feel like God's really given me more than I, you know, more than I could ever hope for, and and so so this is I do what I do for a multitude of reasons. Uh, but one is, is beautiful stories like, like yours, um, that need to be told and need to be heard because it's never too late, man. No matter how catastrophic your life is, no matter how much you've lost, no matter how much you've gone through, if you make a conscious decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God, then anything is possible. Yeah. My, my dad, my dad once told me, um, if you've done a perfect third step in the morning, you have nothing to worry about, yep. do you? And uh, I'll always remember that. And um, it, it is, it's just, uh, it's like you, well, you said you were, you know, liver problems and everything. You I mean, you were on your deathbed, you, you, you face death. And so it's like, uh, you see life in a different way when you come back from that. You just, um, things seem different. Uh I see birds flying, and I think of how beautiful <laughs> it is. Before, I would have been like, "Look at that stupid bird." <laughs> I used to hate Give the birds because they they'd remind me that I'd been up all night. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But now it's like, is now I think to myself, isn't that magical that they have wings and they they know where to go? And look at how the universe works together. And sometimes my girlfriend looks at me like, "Oh my God, here we go again." But, <laughs> But it, it's like I was talking to her yesterday on the couch. I said, just look outside how beautiful it is. I said, it's just beautiful. She's like, okay, okay. Because I ain't getting in that mode, you know. Well, I'll tell you what, man. There's no need to ever get off that mode. Gratitude is the world's most amazing alchemy. Yes, yes. And sometimes it's hard to find things to be thankful for if you're in that bad mood, but but you look for them. I think there's enough good if you're looking for it. It's like a whole shift in your soul and your mindset. And it's like you become this person that you always were that you hid from. 
it's like being reborn and and seeing life again how you were supposed to see it and and when you talked about losing everything I, i remember when i was in the hospital i was like so i lost i'm thinking to myself i lost my nursing license i lost this house i lost these cars i lost everything and i thought to myself how come i've never felt so free and i just had this peace overcoming i was like I never wanted any of that stuff. That's not what life's about. Life's about spending time with your kids and loving them and, and having fun and enjoying every moment. And, and um, I remember another one of my friends who died and we were at his funeral back when I was drinking and we're all going around the bar telling stories about him. And I said, I never heard any of these stories and you never heard any of mine. And why didn't we see any of this stuff while he was alive? And he never heard it. And I said, at that point, I said, I mean, I was still drinking, but I said, from now on, if I see anything good about somebody, I'm going to say it because you never know when somebody's going to go. And you pick up on these lessons along the way. And sure, I picked up on that one when I was drinking, but I still hold it. And if I see something in somebody, I say, you, you know what? I see this in you. And, and sometimes they, you know, think you're a wacko, but I don't care. At first, my face would get red and I'd feel embarrassed. But it feels good. It's like the more love you give, the more you get. And and when I lost everything, I felt this kind of like, wow, I'm free. I'm yeah. free from all this stuff. And I can actually do whatever I want. Life is now a blank piece of paper. I thought, well, I don't want to do RN. I don't, but you know what? I ended up, everything ended up, you know, when going through the courts and everything, I, uh, you know, I lost the house, got divorced and everything, which is probably a good thing. There's too much damage done. And now I'm, I'm happier than I've ever been. And, and nothing's perfect though. Recovery isn't, you take three steps forward, two steps back. I have some pretty shitty days, weeks, bad months, but, uh, life's not linear, but you have, you learn, you just remember these good things and what life's about. And it pulls you through. There's no question about it, man. That's absolutely 100% true. And if more people just could grasp, just could get on board with that mindset, then it's so easy to be able to shift into gratitude, you know, almost immediately when those negative thoughts come in, man. Because the reality is, is that we focus so much of our attention on trivial bullshit that a year yeah. from now, you're not going to remember. But what's important is those those special moments that you have with your family, like you were saying, those special moments with your family. It took me many years. took me many years to figure that one out, chasing that mighty dollar. And then all of a sudden, one day you realize that it's all bullshit and all the money in the world could never give you the time back with your family watching your kids grow, spending time with them as they change, being their mentors, being their yes. their listening board, their sounding board, you know, walking them through life and being available and being present. Yes, and that that's how you change the world is and if you look at kids, I think we could learn a lot from them. You can go buy them a hundred dollar toy and they're like, No, I want to play outside with you. I want your time. And you can teach them and show them the beauty and stop and show them uh, I admire my girlfriend, Bree, because she will, um, the super moon comes and I'm like, oh, I'm going to bed. And she's like, no, everybody wake up. We got to watch it. She's fat. She fascinated by the little things and she, she shows it to them and, and the kids get to experience and they're encouraged about all this, um, all these fascinating things in the world is. And, 
and, and they grow then, they continue to be curious. And you know what Einstein said is intelligence isn't knowledge, it's curiosity. Mm. And to keep these curious and, and keep them alive, and it's just, uh, it's really amazing. But it, but it can be hard because I think our brains are trained to remember negative, I think I read in one book, five to one. Like if you're walking down the, for survival, like you're walking in the woods and you see a snake, you're going to remember that just for survival. But if you see a flower, you're not. So I tell people, if you think one negative thing, say six positive things to overcome that. And it, we're, we're just genetically programmed to remember negative. And, and what I've learned is all the negative things that go on in my head, they, are, they didn't even come from me. They came from whoever else in my life. And I believed them to be true. Your brain doesn't even know what is true. So start. that's why I think affirmations are so important. Yes. True, you know, genuine affirmations. Fill your head with knowledge and positive things. And if you're feeling shame like you're a bad person, go do something kind that takes the shame right away. I feel like a jerk. Go walk a lady across the street. Shame is gone. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, Cortland, we could do this again <laughs> for yeah. hours. Yeah, this for is... hours. All night. I could talk about stuff forever. <laughs> I agree. I agree. All right. But we're going to start closing up. And the way I like to okay. close up the show is for the newcomers. All right. So I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery. And I want you to respond with inspiring answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Yes. Awesome. All right. So number what? Number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Fear. I wanted to feel that connection. I, I felt like I talked to people more and I felt uh, more bonded. And I, I thought, I don't know how I can do this. I wanted that feeling and not knowing and society, everywhere you go, there mm -hmm. it is. There it is. There's not a lot of support. Um, fear. And the people you surround yourself, they say you're the, the average of the 5% of the people you surround yourself with. You're around a bunch of people saying, why'd you quit drinking, man? Why'd you quit drinking? You're fine. <laughs> you're going to drink. But if you're around a bunch of people, you know, hey, come on. You can do this. There's other ways. You got to be careful about your environment. And you're going to, when you start recovery, you're going to lose some friends and that's okay. You're going to gain more friends. And some people who you thought were acquaintances, become everything changed. But I was afraid. I mean, I, there's still days I'm very afraid. I'm afraid to go talk to my boss and say, hey, I disagree. I mean, but you learn. You learn. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, I love that quote, man. Jim Rohn, you are the average of the five, of the five people you spend the most around, amount of time with, period. It's true. It's absolutely true. You hang around with uh, four, with five alcoholics, you'll be the sixth. You hang around with five recovering addicts, you'll be the sixth. Absolutely. No question about it. I tell my daughter that all the time. And my Kayla, if you're in a room full of five people smoking crack, eventually you're going to be smoking crack because yep. you're a weirdo if you're not. Reverse it the same way. Watch who you hang around. And if you're recovering and your environment's not changing, you're not recovering. Absolutely. All right. So number two, at what point did you have that spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed a hope that you could recover? I would say like when uh, I was holding Matic and I, I thought, man, how am I going to do this? 
how am I going to do this, but I'm going to try. And then that, as my girlfriend says, tidal wave came through me and I, I just, just was like, you know, it's like a, a battle, you know, you're going to take some punches and beats and it, it just, I can't, I mean, words will never do it justice. It's like uh, you're outside yourself, you become pure again. It's like something's in you. And then there's another time I was in the hospital, like I said, when I lost everything and I'm supposed to be pissed off. And I was like, wait a second, I feel free. Mm. It's all the stuff that I thought was making me who I am. That's the stuff that's holding me down and making me depressed. And it was just both times. It was this peace. I can't, like I talked about before about when I did cocaine, I felt this peace. I felt that and I felt it without drugs. And I thought, Oh my God, this is what life is. I want this. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful, man. That is, that's exactly when you realize that the spiritual connection is the most important thing in your life and stuff is just stuff. And in many cases, it's a blockage to so much. One of the very famous Buddhist uh, sayings that uh, I learned in early recovery was, attachment is at the root of all suffering. Yes, yes, yes. And I could not agree more. Yes, but I, wrote, I read a lot, a lot of Buddhism stuff on early recovery. It, for some reason, that connected with me. Yeah, it's beautiful stuff, man. Beautiful stuff. All right, so number three, do you have a favorite book that you could recommend to our newcomers that you read in early recovery? When I was in early recovery, I was I uh, was sitting in my parents' basement, despair. My brother comes over and he says, "You know, I didn't read because I, you know, he's like, here, look at this book. It was called Fear from Thich Nhat Han, and the first page it says, number one, you will die. Number two, everything you love and hold dear will eventually be separated from you. Three, you will become ill." And I thought. Brian, you're giving me a book that says this shit when I'm tr- when I'm desperate. But then I thought, if I think like that, I'm going to cherish every moment. And I read that book, and then I read another of his and another. In that book, uh, of course, most of his books start to say the same thing in different ways. But that book, Fear, and the Four Agreements from Don Miguel Ruiz, that blew me away. And, and you know, and then I got addicted to reading. I ended up reading like 200 books in two years when I had... I, I had read one book my life before that. You know, I read the Odyssey in high school once. Even in college, I didn't read books. But but then I just I was like, holy cow! And I, I felt like I was filling my mind full of all this new information, and I I couldn't stop. And then that's when I started writing. I was like, I got a man. I started talking about all this stuff, and then my therapist says, I say, you know, everybody gets sick of me talking about all this stuff, you know, and it kind of bothers me. He says, well, why don't you just write it down? And I wrote it down, started a blog, wrote one. And then there was like the next morning, oh, 600 people were commenting. I was like, what the heck? So I just kept going. It just evolved. Once you, uh, once you get your voice out there, man, sometimes, you know, the floodgates just open. Yeah. And you never see it coming just by living. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. All right. So number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? This, uh. That that's a hard question, um, but I'll tell you, I was I was in an AA meeting once, and there was this old retired police officer in there, and I just loved listening to him talk for some reason. And he said, "Well, I can tell how I'm doing. You know how I can tell how I'm doing?" And I said, "Wow!" 
And he said, my dog. And I said, what, what are you talking about? And he said, well, a dog is a dog. A dog sits there and acts the same every day. But some days I'm thinking, you stupid dog, what are you doing sitting on the couch, you idiot? And some days I'm like, oh, I'm petting the dog. The dog, he said, was a barometer as to how I was doing mentally. And I thought, wow. And sometimes I think about that, like looking on Facebook. Is this everything everybody's saying pissing me off? That means something's going on with me. <laughs> but then another day I'll look at it and I'll be like, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. I love her. I love her. And then the next day it's like, idiot, idiot, idiot. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? <laughs> so I use this dog thing as a, as a, you know, you can look at that. Things are all, like Facebook's always Facebook. Dogs are always dogs. How we are treating those things kind of give us a clue as to, hey, come on, what's going on with you? Yeah, what a great barometer. And, uh, you know, there was that, uh, there was one saying that was, uh, if you're walking down the street and you run into an asshole, then that person might be an asshole. If you keep yeah. walking down the street and you walk into two more assholes, then you're yes. the asshole. <laughs> I love it. I have not heard that. I love that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> I don't know if I got it right, but you got the gist of it, right? I like that. I like that. Very true. It is, man, you know? Yeah, everybody's an asshole today. Everybody's an asshole today. I guess that means um, I'm the asshole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. And everybody around you is the asshole, and the asshole's you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So number five, finally, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be? Oh, there's so much. Um, well, every recovery is different. Um, I, I, I call it um, masks we put on. And we all have different masks based on our culture, our upbringing, things that happen to us, our traumas, our lives. So every mask needs to be uniquely removed. So if I were going to go to you and say, oh, your recovery needs to be this and this and this and this, that's not necessarily true. Every recovery is different. What works for you might not. But there is some similarities in every, every recovery. And I think that one ingredient that has to be there is human connection and the ability to be self-aware, like the asshole thing. Looking in the mirror and soul-searching is hard, um, but your recovery is your own. Try everything, and what works for you works for you. Um, keep trying, keep fighting, and, and um, it's going to be pain. I will never lie. If I'm walking through a treatment center and I see somebody saying, I'm fine, I'm okay, I'm like, it's not working. But if I see somebody slamming their phone, crying at their family, I walk by and I think that's beautiful. It's working. You're starting to feel these emotions that you've never hit. You've never been willing to feel before. Um, it's going to be painful. It's going to suck. You're going to be lonely. You're going to feel awful. Um, and you're going to think people who say it's beautiful are crazy. But if you keep going, when you get to the other side of that bridge, it's amazing. So I would say try everything. Talk to everybody. And I would also say, you know, the thing that you're most afraid of, the thing that's hardest for you to do is probably the thing that you should be doing. Like muscles, they grow by using them. You never work out your leg muscles, they get weak. Me, I had a hard time with, uh, I had a hard time with confrontation and talking to people assertively. Still do sometimes. So when I do that, that releases a lot of demons. 
do what's hard in steps and daily, and it is going to suck, but it is going to be worth it. <laughs> Man, this has been an amazing interview. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us, Cortland. Yes, it was great. We could probably talk about this for 10 hours, me and you. We could, we could. Now, is there a way for our listeners to reach out to you, or do you have a website? Tell us the best way for our listeners to reach out to you. Okay, I have a, a Facebook page. It's um, called Taking the Mask Off. I post the articles we write. We write a lot of articles for Wake Up World, uh, Waking Times. I have my own website, takingthemaskoff.com, but generally we write for these other places now, Um And we post them on Taking the Mask Off. We'll post videos. We'll post interviews. Um, I think it has like 60,000 followers now. And they message me there. They can email me. I said when I started this, I'm going to respond. I told her when I said, we're going to respond to everybody. And I don't care what it says and how long it takes us. We're going to respond to everything we get. Bad, good, cursing us out. And so... It might take time now that it's gotten a little bigger, but we pride ourselves on responding to everything, every question we get. I just had somebody message me today in an inbox uh, while I was going to a meeting saying she had just started reading the book. And I said, I said, tell me what you think. I don't care if it's good or bad. Just let's talk about it. And so we really try to do that. And it's a Facebook page called Taking the Mask Off. That's where most of it happens. And Wake Up Worlds, where you would see most of our articles we had, we've written about. Irwin writes a lot about a history stuff and and like Thanksgiving and how, you know, there's a bunch of lies out there. And he's in recovery, too. And we have a writer's page for them. We write for Waking Times. And um, we've been on Mad in America. But mostly our Facebook page, Taking the Mask Off. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, folks. I'm going to have the Facebook page listed on the show notes and the book, Taking the Mask Off, also listed on the show notes. Uh, Join the Facebook fan page and get the book. All right. So we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.